Repentance unto salvation begins the Christian life, a life that is characterized by repentance. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can dive into this text of Scripture, the very words from your mouth to us. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the power of the gospel that has so marvelously worked in our lives. And Father, we thank you for the grace of repentance. And today, Lord, teach us about repenting. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 37 through 41. The Apostle Peter preached that powerful Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. And after that sermon was preached, we come to our text today. God's word for God's people. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continue to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. You may be seated. What is your conversion experience? the 3,000 people that we read about in our text today would be able to say, well, on such and such a date, I was saved. When we consider the Apostle Paul himself in Acts chapter 9, when we turn to Acts chapter 16 and we consider the Philippian jailer as well as Lydia, they too would be able to say, well, on such and such a date, I was saved. In other words, they would be able to tell you, as so many in our day say it, they would be able to tell you their spiritual birthday, a date that represents when they were saved. When one of our children was in high school, in a particular class they were taking, the teacher asked, I want everyone here to give me your spiritual birthday. The teacher wanted to know if they knew when they were saved. And our child, who grew up in this church, good little Presbyterian kid, said, I don't know. Which concerned the teacher, which delighted her Presbyterian parents. We read in our text today about the promise, Peter said, is for you and for your children. That's our perspective on how God works. We understand the Bible from a covenantal perspective. Our children 
are part of the visible covenant community. And as such, they are privileged to be in a church where from infancy they heard the gospel preached and proclaimed. They heard the gospel from their parents in the home. They heard the gospel. Further, the offer of God's salvation, the offer of God's promise to save is placed upon them as they are baptized and they carry that offer until they actually make a public profession of faith. We do not know exactly when God works in the life of our children, but so many of our children have this testimony when they say, well, I don't know when I was saved, but what I can say is that from my earliest memories, I have known of my sin and my need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior in whom I trust. And so what is interesting about conversion is this. It varies. Some people can truly give you a date. I was saved on such and such a date. Praise God for that. But then there are those who have no idea. They may have grown in maturing, understanding the gospel more. There may be a date where there was a particular experience of growth and maybe dealing with sin and seeing the Lord work. But yet for so many of our children, maybe for so many of us, we say, I don't know when I was saved. I know I'm saved. I know that God has blessed me from my earliest days. I've always known of my sin and need for a Savior. But the point I want to bring up is though one's testimony with regards to the conversion experience may vary, one thing doesn't vary, <laughs> and that is this, that conversion is a radical transformation of a sinner. Their whole life, inside and out, is transformed, irrespective of the variability of the conversion experience. And that's what we'll look at today, acknowledging the variability of one's conversion experience, but really focusing on what is conversion, and in particular, what is repentance. Today we're looking at repentance. Next week we will be looking at faith, repentance and faith by theologians and some of the older theologians, especially one older theologian that all the guys study that are trained as elders and deacons here at Covenant, G.I. Williamson. G.I. Williamson talks about conversion and the twin graces of conversion, repentance and faith. Really, when we're talking about repentance, we're talking about faith. And when we're talking about faith, we're talking about repentance. They, they infer one another. They're two sides of the same coin. You really can't have one without the other. But today, we do want to to just look at repentance to see if we can grasp more 
of this initial response to regeneration. And then next week, we'll also look at the other part of that initial response of faith. In other words, conversion is this. We turn from sin and we turn to Christ. That's repentance. And then we turn to Christ in faith. That's the other part of conversion, repentance and faith. And so today we'll be looking at primarily repentance, though please understand faith is implied. It's it's really hard to separate them. And we'll be looking at three things, the meaning, response, and life of repentance. When I began by saying that, that true repentance unto salvation begins a life characterized by repentance, that's how we'll end the sermon today. By acknowledging that repentance is that initial response of a regenerate person to the outward proclamation of the gospel as God has regenerated our hearts, but that that very same repentance that begins our Christian life, so to speak, that is part of conversion, also now characterizes the whole of the Christian life. And to say it another way and negatively, if we are not repenters today, we must question, have we ever repented unto salvation? That is how important repentance is to the gospel and to us. So first, the meaning of repentance. Repentance is a change inwardly, a change in our inward disposition or our constitution that results in a change outwardly in our behavior. That is a simple but I think very workable definition for repentance. I have repented. My disposition and behavior towards green beans at one stage in my life was this. I was a green bean hater. Did not want to have anything to do with them. Would choose to go on a separate aisle at the grocery store, either frozen or fresh, if there were green beans present on that aisle. But a miraculous thing happened. There was a transformation inwardly. My mind toward green beans my affections towards green beans and my will with regards to green beans was radically changed. I became one who thought well of green beans, who loved green beans, and who would choose green beans at every meal if I could. I was a green bean hater, And now, through this transformation of my inward disposition, my taste buds, 
perhaps were changed somewhere along my life's journey and I became a green bean fanatic. My whole life pattern regarding green beans has changed. And you may think I'm kidding, and I'm not. I really did not like green beans, but now I do. Now that is perhaps a silly, and certainly it is a very weak illustration of repenting, but it does make the point that repentance is a change, a radical change, inside and out. It is a wholesale change of one's inward disposition and behavior towards God, first and foremost. The, the, the faculties that constitute us as being human beings, as being human beings who are created in the image of God, the, the, the three components of being a person, our mind, our affections, and our will, those things are radically changed when we are converted, especially in the sense we are repenting. G.I. Williamson uses the term a full orb transformation, a transformation of the whole person inside and out. So repentance involves this, this inward change, the, the faculty of our mind. We begin to think differently. We are able now to understand that we are sinners under God's judgment. We are able to see, to understand our lost condition. Just look to Romans 3.20. And then repentance involves the, the, the total transformation of our affections. We may even say our feelings. You know, once we loved self and the things of this world and we were drawn to them, once we loved sin, saw nothing wrong with it, and at every opportunity, we were drawn towards sin, but repentance changes all of that. We began to hate our sin. We began to turn from it. Our affections are transformed. Turn from this now onto Christ. And we begin to feel the weight of our sin, our guilt, Psalm 51, verse 17. It becomes too burdensome for us. We feel the consequences and the guilt of sin. And then true repentance involves a change of our will. We, we begin to choose different things. There's a transformation there as well. We begin to turn from choosing sin to turn to choosing Christ. Next week, we'll, we'll look at the side of conversion that, that is faith, but turning from sin to Christ in faith. That's, that's the scope 
of this full orb transformation and conversion that takes place. Repentance also involves a change in our outward behavior. The, the direction of our life changes. Thus, our, our whole life pattern begins to change. When we repent, we think differently. We, we feel differently. We love differently. We choose differently. We behave differently. There's an inward reality and an outward reality as well. It looks as though our, our life has so dramatically been transformed, there has been such change that one might say, wow, that person has done a 180. Very much like me on multiple occasions during the pandemic, hop out of my car, halfway into the store, I realize no mask, a 180 to go back to get my mask. Repentance results in a change as drastic as that. Heading in this direction, all of a sudden, boom. Heading in the opposite direction, this 180 in inwardly and outwardly. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. This is part of Paul's dialogue with King Agrippa as he is being held in prison. I just want to read <clears throat> verse 20. Because here in verse 20, the Apostle Paul uses the two words in the Greek that are translated repentance, though they infer a slight variation of repentance where one seems to focus more on the inward aspect of repentance and the other tends to focus more on the outward behavior or the outward realities of repentance. And so verse 20 reads like this, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, the word inferring more that inward change, and turn, another Greek word for repentance that seems to focus more on the outward change, and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Here in this one passage, you see both of these words used, and I, and I think as we look at both of these words used in this one passage, we begin to develop a full understanding of what repentance is. It is inward change, an inward turning, an inward transformation that has a definite outward reality to it, a behavioral change. And again, I would say that if your life hasn't changed from and is not changing, and certainly if you are one of those who has a, able to give a spiritual birthday for your conversion, and your life is not significantly different than when it was before you really began to seek Christ, or if you had more of a gradual conversion as a covenant child. If your life, if your behavior hasn't substantially changed over the period of your life, I think this calls for us the question, am I saved? Repentance is transformation of the whole person. Anthony Hoykema, or Hukema says, Repentance may be defined as a conscious turning of the regenerate person away from sin 
and toward God in complete change of living, which reveals itself in a new way of thinking, feeling, and willing. The meaning of repentance. Now, the response of repentance. It is a necessary response. It is the initial response, as Hukama says, of the regenerate person. I have heard people say, and I can't, I, I'm not speaking of anyone associated with covenant, so just know that, but outside of covenant, I, I, have, I have heard people describe their, their conversion in this way. I came kicking and screaming to Jesus. Have you ever heard that? I hope not, but you probably have. How can we, now listen, we can't, we can't appreciate the, the, the struggle that maybe we have all experienced or the confusion or just the fear of experiencing such a radical change, be, being transformed. But yet, should there be any reluctance at all for a truly repentant person turning from his or her sin, that, by the way, will condemn them to hell, and turning to Christ who grants life. In fact, the way I see it, when one begins to see how desperate their lost condition is, the natural response is not, well, I come kick kicking and screaming to Jesus. No. It is not just to turn to Jesus to come to Jesus. It is to run to Jesus like we are running out of a house that is on fire and burning down. That to me is consistent with this radical transformation that takes place, be it at a particular point in our life or gradually as we're being raised in the church. Look at our text today. Peter preached Christ and him crucified. We see that wonderful sermon in verses 14 through 36 of Acts 2. He outwardly offered the gospel to all of those who were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And as we saw in the third sermon in this series, that the outward call of the gospel preaching, evangelism, whatever form it might take, is a necessary part of God saving sinners. And here we find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, the gospel preached, now the response. In verse 37, those who heard the gospel message were what? Cut to the heart, the text tells us. If we go down to verse 41, we know that after that sermon and after the question was asked by those who heard the gospel and were cut to the heart and after Peter called them to repent and be baptized and after he gave more explanation, there were 3,000 souls we would, in, we would say that were saved, that came into the kingdom that day. And so presumably then, those who are asking the question, those who were cut to the heart in verse 37 are those 
represent those 3,000 souls. We see the impact of Peter's sermon. And the impact was not only to be heard, but to pierce right to the very core of one's being. Where, where, where did the word of God pierce? Right to the heart. That is what God's word does under the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, we need to be reminded that the mere fact that I'm up here preaching and my desire is to be faithful in preaching. But the mere fact that you're sitting here and these words are flowing over you really has no effect. You might hear the words and appreciate what is said, laugh at one of my attempts at jokes that hopefully are relevant to push a point. And anytime we hear the word of God, there is a benefit. Please do not misunderstand. But unless God the Holy Spirit is using that word to pierce our hearts, there will not be really an effect of change. It's the work of the Holy Spirit enabling us to be faithful hearers, cutting our hearts with that word. And so here, God the Holy Spirit takes that word that Peter preached and just used it as a surgeon's scalpel to cut right to the middle of the heart and to expose all. This reminds me of the Hebrews passage that so beautifully tells us about how the word works. Listen to this, chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Those who ask Peter and the other apostles the question in chapter 2, verse 37, those who experience that word under the ministry of the Holy Spirit cutting to the heart began to realize their guilt, began to see their sin. And as Dr. Kistemacher says, they became deeply troubled. Let me say, hearing the gospel and becoming deeply troubled is a glorious thing. Amen? If you hear the gospel, if you hear about sin, if you hear about judgment, and you hear about Christ and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and his making you liberated from sin and a son of the, and daughter of the living God, if you hear that and you're not troubled and at the same time overjoyed with the hope of the gospel, your ears are closed and you're not cut to the heart. They became deeply troubled. The prophet Joel in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Bruce read a, a passage, er, this passage earlier, and it really speaks of repentance as rending of the heart. He, Joel emphasizes that repentance is not just seeking relief, it's it's not just saying, oh God, I'm sorry. Didn't mean, didn't mean to do that. 
No, it is rather cutting to the heart so powerfully that the person begins to feel the weight of their sin, begins to experience the guilt that sin brings, begins to tremble at the word of judgment. God, through the prophet Hosea, condemns Israel for false repentance. If you turn to Hosea chapter 6, you find Israel repenting like this at the very beginning of chapter 6. Oh God, you, you have, your hand is heavy upon us. We, we are suffering your judgment in all of these ways. We repent. Give us relief. That's, that's how they repented. And then if you turn to Hosea chapter 7 and verse 14, you'll find God calling them out on their false repentance. And this is what he says in chapter 7 and verse 14 of Hosea. God saying, they do not cry to me from their heart, but they well upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves, they rebel against me. And, and what, what God says to, to Israel is that you're not repenting, you're just asking for relief because you have not cried out from your heart. Our text today points to repentance originating deep in the core of the person, the heart. The fourth sermon in our series focuses on effectual calling and regeneration. We considered there God's gracious work prior to any spiritual activity of man where he gives us a new spiritual life. He gives us a new heart in the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In the words of Jesus, he brings about our being born again, being born of water and the word, being born of the spirit, a new spiritual life. We also look at the fact that the, the regenerative work of God enables the sinner to respond to that outward call of the gospel in repentance and faith. The very thing that was lost by Adam, the ability to seek God, is restored in regeneration where we're able to respond. And though the text before us today does not explicitly say it, regeneration is very much the reality here. The 3,000 were able to see their sin because that ability that was lost with Adam had been restored. They were enabled to see their sin, to feel the weight of their sin, and to choose to turn from it toward God. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30, the, the, the Philippian jailer cried out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in our text today, those who cried out, what must we do? We're crying out in the same way. This is the cry of the troubled soul as we hear the gospel, as God gives us the ability to see our sin and to see our lost condition. It's the cry of the soul, what must I do to be saved? 
It is the cry of a sinner with a new heart. It is the cry of true repentance, repentance unto salvation. And Peter responded to their, their cry. He said, be converted. Respond to, to the message of the gospel by repenting, turning from your sin and turning to Christ in, in faith. It's interesting how he speaks of this. Peter uses repent and be baptized, and he's certainly not telling us that baptism saves, but baptism is an outward sign of that inward reality of faith. And so in effect, what Peter is saying, even though he uses baptism, he's really saying repent and believe in the name of Christ. That's how we should understand it. Where regeneration is the sole work of God, conversion is both a grace or gift of God as well as a responsibility. It is a responsibility that we have to repent and to believe. It is a necessary response. No one gets into the kingdom of heaven without it. It is a one-time response. We repent one time unto salvation. We do not lose our salvation and we have to keep on repenting. They repented unto salvation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 17, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Their response to Peter, this is what we need to see, was the initial response of a regenerate person to the proclamation of the gospel. Do we see any reluctance on the part of those, the 3,000 in our text today, who were cut to the heart? And the answer that I have is no. They cried out as those perishing in a fire. They cried out as those who were turning from death to life. They cried out, what must we do as those running from the jaws of judgment into the embrace of grace. Repentance is something we do as a response to what God has already done. And it is something that we do willingly without reluctance. And lastly, the, the life of repentance Salvation begin, uh, repentance unto salvation begins a life of repentance. Here's what John Calvin said as he, as he was teaching about the image of, of God and man being restored through Christ. Calvin says, God wipes out in his elect the corruptions of the flesh, cleanses them of guilt, consecrates them to himself as temples, renewing all their minds to true purity that they may practice repentance throughout their lives and know that this warfare will end only at death. What was Calvin saying? We repent to get into heaven and we repent as those who are, who are admitted into heaven. In other words, repentance is part of the Christian life. There is repentance unto salvation that begins our union with Christ and then repentance should characterize the life of those who are in Christ. 
Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 38, when he, when he describes the cost of discipleship, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That command of Jesus infers repentance. Paul's statement in Romans 12, 2, where he talks about, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That command of Paul infers repentance. We are taught in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that is written to those who are on the journey of the Christian life. Repentance is the initial response to the gospel, but it's not the last time we repent. A truly converted and mature Christian is a truly repentant Christian because our lives are so dramatically transformed on the inside to the outside. So transformed that there is a visible change in our behavior. And that visible change is also represented by a fruit of repentance. In John 3, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, preached repentance to enter uh, the kingdom of God in Christ. And while he was baptizing, he was challenged by the religious elite of his day. And to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said this in John, I'm sorry, in Matthew 3, 7 through 10, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what was that fruit in keeping with repentance? I believe that fruit is contrition and brokenness before God in light of our sins. James 4, 8 through 10, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Before he exalts you, humble yourself before the Lord. Be broken and contrite. Thomas Watson in his book on repentance describes repentance in this way. It is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. Watson says repentance is a matter of seeing one's sin, sorrowing over one's sin, confessing one's sin, being ashamed of one's sin, hating one's sin, and turning from one's sin. It really depicts a broken and contrite sinner before God dealing with the depth of his or her sin, feeling the weight of his or her offense against God, finally getting to the place where David was in Psalm 51 when he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. King David was a pro at not acknowledging his sin. 
he struggled to see the sinfulness of his sin. But God graciously and mercifully broke David, brought him to that place of contrition. That's why David wrote in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I have found these two verses from David have been so helpful to me in coming to grips with the depths of my sin. Because like David, I'll do everything I can to ignore my sin. I will blame shift and excuse in every way not to have to deal with the sinfulness of my sin. But if we pray this prayer, be ready for God to search your heart and to search my heart and to dredge up our sin that we might be broken and contrite and brought to deep repentance saying along with David I have sinned against you Lord forgive me the church is full of fake repenters and one reason why is that we haven't grasped that we repent as we enter the kingdom and life in the kingdom is characterized by deep repentance. The church is full of fake repenters because so few of us have the courage and the spiritual wisdom to honestly and openly ask God to show us our sin. May we be repenters. May we be so committed to repentance that is to characterize the Christian life. May we be so serious about it that we would do what so many people would say is a foolish thing to do. And that is to ask God to show us our sin that we might truly, deeply repent of it and be restored to him. Let us pray. Father, repentance unto salvation begins a life characterized by repentance. And Father, I pray that you would be so kind as to make us even more repenters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would take